Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, eat delicious pizza their wives made, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your host writers today are David Welsh, Barry Kirchival, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 135, Outdated Tech References. I'm counting you as a standard because, Barry, you are one of the constants in my life being a member of my writing group, The Flying Cars. And oh, that's very, kind of you to say. Who have not heard of him yet clearly are not big in the tech industry, or you would have read DHCP, A Guide to Dynamic TCP IP Network Configuration, or Such Page Turners as TCP IP over APM, A No-Nonsense Internetworking Guide. You basically have wrote the book on how computers all talk to each other. <laughs> I've well, written the book. I've written some of the books. Some of the books. It counts. And you brought up a great question on email that started all this saying, what technologies have changed that made older stories seem quaint or even incomprehensible? And I'm going to add, by today's youthful audience or anybody under the age of 30, for instance, tell us, tell yeah. me about... Read off the example that kind of got you thinking on all of this. Well, the first example that began the whole thing was I was listening in the car to a previous Riders Drinking Coffee episode where you were talking about great first lines of various works of this most excellent literature. First lines are hard. (laughs) And I was, uh, I kept expecting you guys to come up with the first line of uh, William Gibson's famous Neuromancer, which is, the sky above the port was the color of a television tuned to a dead channel, which is a lovely evocative sentence. It sort of sets the tone for the whole book. But it occurred to me that uh, basically anyone under 30 has never seen a TV turned to a dead channel with this gray static going on. Uh, modern digital TVs, uh, if there's no signal, they just either go to solid blue or black and sometimes put up the words, no signal. I'm a little uh, comforted that there is still the ability to, they still have to, by law, have broadcast television. So there are a few people that said, Good Lord, who can afford the ridiculous rates that Xfinity and some of the others charge? Well, and yeah, so but they, it's digital. Right. No, not necessarily. My mom bought a set of rabbit ears just this last week. They are still for sale. They still exist, and they still hook into your television. Right, but the right. signal is digital. Yeah, I think uh, former UHF uh, TV broadcasting has been uh, discontinued since, I think, 2001, if I'm not mistaken, which I probably could be. But there I could least... be mistaken too. I don't. I don't know yeah. for sure that it's broadcast digitally. But um, it well, when seems... I go when I go put my mom's rabbit ears up and and attach them to some sort of antique TV, which we get sh- probably she already has waiting by the side of the road because mom's that sort. <laughs> I feel like, you know, we'll go around and I will try to find the dead channels and find out what color are they really? Are they still kind of that 
gray, tiny, pixelated, black and white, you know, with that constantly swirling mistiness or not. Right. Or even the yeah. rainbow channels of, you know, this is off or the emergency. Remember the emergency broadcast channels? Yes. Yeah. And uh, let's see, what's another one? Uh, the whole idea of Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson uh, was inspired by uh, one of his Macintosh programs crashing and then writing random garbage into the bitmap. So he got <laughs> basically snow all over the screen. Which was yeah. essentially what the static from uh, a dead signal was. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think... Um, I mean, I was contemplating this. You have, for those people that are still on some kind of DSL, you can have signal interruption and signal noise that way, for instance, if you have splitters. I mean, I remember when I got my condo in... 2003, which some jerk pointed out was like nearly 20 years ago, but I had a line splitter for my television then, and then a line splitter for my phone, and then a line splitter, you know, another one that led it, yeah, led off. If you were stealing motor. cable and had a lot of splitters, it got really bad. So, right. so there is some room for signal noise that way, but only for really cheap bastards like me. Well, is there is there a reason we're focusing on this one particular technology? Oh, no, we're just starting there. We can go anywhere, but, you know, we okay. don't want to lose everybody. Well, I wanted to point out that uh, there's a difference between quaint and incomprehensible, which were the two descriptions used in the in the introduction there. So um, I think there's a lot that could be considered quaint, but, you know, for it to be incomprehensible, there really has to be some kind of a, a real, like a whole generation gap since the technology has been used. Right. Or since it's been seen by kids on on shows or whatever. I think it's heading that way, though. I mean, if you looked at the anything under, let's just say, 25 and under set, who are the next generation of readers, etc., would they get it? Or would they just, would this just be one of those things like there's references for in really old books that we read? I wonder if we're even conscious about the fact that we didn't quite know what they were. Well, when I was young and, and reading, I, I read a lot when I was young, and there was a lot of stuff I didn't understand. Um, and for the most part, um, if I didn't feel like looking something up, I would just ignore it and go on. And if it if it proved important to the plot later on, I you know was kind of stuck, but it wasn't necessarily. Right. Yeah, I hear. And Barry, you were remembering something about. TV shows like set in 2005, like what a crappy phone they have there. <laughs> yeah, right. Or uh, science fiction TV shows or movies that have a giant computer in the background with tape reels going back and forth. And, you know, who uses magnetic tape anymore? Well, I loved that the movie Hidden Figures, for instance, had that big, enormous room full of IBM counting machine and the adventure was well there it is what precisely do we do with it until somebody womaned right up and rtfm'd as it were right. yes, which is that, supposed to prove that people have not loved reading manuals ever so <laughs> well most people i loved reading manuals and that's how i was able to uh do a lot of stuff that seemed like magic to my cohorts mm. 
I, I didn't read manuals so much as, let's just say it with me, man pages. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to say and was even, how did you become a grepping queen? And Right. You learn once you learn how to grip, you learn how to do some basic queries, and there you are suddenly snorting. And I wish it sounded better instead of just dirty, but no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was all very sexist because there were no woman pages. Yeah, I did mind that a little bit, but the girl pages were going to be in a whole different section of the internet at the time. So, <laughs> right now that still goes back to it. I think we've talked about the topic before, but it never hurts to bring it up again. There is still so much tech that is being written now that is just playing wrong for current tech too. I mean, one of my favorites being keep him talking so we can trace this call. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, honey bunny. <laughs> <laughs> or the famous zoom in and enhance. Oh, various forensic shows. You know, you just can't do that. If the information's not there in the bitmap, um, you're basically screwed. And I feel like that's a lie that we've all bought into wholeheartedly. Like we want it to be real that you can. Oh, yeah. I'm just looking over his shoulder and reading, reading that secret note that Dave picked up off of his monitor. But right. you can't. if the if the data is not there, you can't zoom in and see it. And all of the artificial intelligence in the world is kind of just a great big bad full of if-then statements, right? Right. You can get. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. You can get a little bit of extra definition with various tricks and some AI, but uh, only a little bit. You can't zoom in on a six-pixel-wide license plate and read the numbers, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. You mean you can't extrapolate what it has to be? Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> May have rounding in the letter somewhere. Could mm. be a number. Can't be sure. Right. I could see that. Well, we were thinking about if they were writing about networking, um, as you put before 1995, you have Asimov's Multivac. But oh, it yes. Is I wrote that down here in my notes. The interesting, one interesting thing about Multivac was that it was supposedly really, really huge, huge enough to have corridors and rooms inside it. And it was all based on vacuum tubes. So, uh, you know, who knows, who among us has actually seen a computer with vacuum tubes in it? I have. Yeah. I have too. My the first computer I ever worked on had vacuum tubes, but it was oh. already obsolete in the sixties. Yeah. I don't know. Now imagining multivac, I'm imagining a whole bunch of guys all lined up with vacuum cleaners and swiffers ready to go. Yeah. It was actually a takeoff on Univac, which was uh, an existing computer at the time, which was hilarious if you knew about it. <laughs> right. And I did. And the reason I saw a vacuum tube computer was my dad worked on computers uh, even back in the day. So. Right. Well, they, there were many adventures that people seem to just pick and choose. Like, I will never forget the Cylon base is six microns in closing. <laughs> now, for those yeah. of you not aware of a micron, a micron is 
the hairs on the back of your arm are could be measured in multiple microns. Many, they're, many well, microns. Well, that was just a case of their um, their techno babble generator just kind of accidentally got a false positive, right? I mean, <laughs> it, they hit on something that actually was something. Um, oh, techno babble is fun though in its own way. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that. I think that we always need a new beryllium sphere and possibly any of the other tube-like objects. Synchronizers, you know. <laughs> then there's always the famous Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Oh, yes. Yeah, which, which they retconned. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> See, I think they should leave stuff like that alone, but that's just me. Um, so one, I wanted to um, say about uh, when we started this conversation about things that seem anachronistic. And I said uh, a generation or so has to go before it's uh, like completely incomprehensible. Um, So another question is, do you think that the accelerating pace of technological change has made that different? I mean, you, you knew from personal experience growing up, pretty much every technology of any importance that would show up in a story for the last hundred years, right? Now it's 20 years ago. There's stuff that kids haven't seen. I I don't know, Dave. I think you're kind of in denial about the fact that we're all old enough to be grandparents if we started young. Well, (laughs) so, so really there could be, you know, a couple generations going on here already. Yeah. yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm still maintaining that um, there um, the the accelerated pace of change has has made the gap. I mean, look at your. I mean, when when did we first get cell phones? I first got mine in two thousand three, but again, Luddite. What? When did you? Well, okay, so say late nineties. Uh, that's twenty years ago. That's a generation. When right. did you drop your landline? I still have one. <laughs> Wait a second here. Well, there are reasons to have one. But yeah, it's, it's piggybacked one. on my cable, uh, which also carries my internet and is carrying my smiling face to you guys. Uh, but my wife's 93-year-old uh, mother lives with us, and so we wanted to have a landline for emergencies in case you know the power was out and she had a, some sort of problem and we needed to call somebody. So, yeah, yeah there are reasons for keeping... The good old reliable pots, uh, plain old television, plain, plain old, old telephone service. Telephone yeah. service, yes. Yeah. Well, there absolutely is, especially if you're in a place where things can go out regularly. For instance, I mean, it is a joke. It, it is not a joke, I suppose. It is a sad thing that there was a survey put out that 49% of Americans believed that stormy weather interfered with cloud computing because people didn't understand that cloud computing just means somebody else's computer. But for anybody that's rural HughesNet, you know, service of the internet through some kind of, uh, any kind of dish, you get the wind that can upset that and change things and muck it up. And honestly, I can say that HughesNet in some rural areas on top of mountains, et cetera, still have that challenge. You know, they still have that, shaky internet service which can go out at the drop of a hat on the other hand your plain old telephone service has its own different wire and its own connection and so if you lost power you often still have your phone right 
because uh, phone lines phone, are not the same ex- as power lines. <laughs> yeah, phone exchanges actually run on batteries, so they will stay up even in a power failure. Whereas uh, I get my internet through a cable service, and when the power goes out, which it does in this semi-rural place I live fairly regularly, we we keep internet for about 20 minutes and then all the backup batteries are drained and it goes away right right but but the cell phone service spotty as it is stays up so i could we can do limited internet through our our iphones so i suppose there's an advantage to a general public not quite understanding how technology works because it makes it easier for them to accept whatever it is that the writer has written and right Yet at the same time, there is a there is a way it has of kind of biting you, and I call it the the mockery that I have for people that think that their movements can physically be chapped, tracked. You know, if somebody injected a microchip in them without really understanding what chips are, how big they need to be, what is a sending versus receiving versus just communicating by Bluetooth. Yeah, so. I, I wanted to state this out loud just in case there's every, anybody here that truly believes that any of the, the current vaccines or needles can implant a, something that will track your movements. No, your phone tracks your movements. Right. They've already done that. They've already done that. You're already carrying it everywhere. And most of you still have your Bluetooth on, which is a whole different lecture for me of why you shouldn't. But on the other hand, there's some neat tech out there that uses Bluetooth passively, like the tile, for instance. If you have attached a little tile to your key fob or a tile to your dog's tags or something because they're minimum about the size of a quarter, they'll go across what they have in it, but they are tracked through Bluetooth phone connections of how far they are because Bluetooth is constantly a promiscuous little bitch and open to getting different things. And so I just wanted to tell everybody that the chip in your animal is too small to go through a regular injection needle. And you have to, they have to to scan the pets. If you've ever found a lost cat or dog, you take it in and they put the scanner right up there by the animal. And that's the only way they can read it. Right. the pet microchip is basically too small to have any significant antenna to uh, broadcast its location to the the Jewish space lasers or whatever. It's true. There just is a certain size needed. So also, if you out there are writing a story based on this kind of microchip, we like thinking of, remember the... um, the micro dots that some of them were like, yeah, we're going to track this drug shipment. But what they attach is actually much bigger than a lot of people think. It's a different scanner, different technology, size of a quarter, you slip it in. And again, Bluetooth. So Bluetooth is a magic way they have of it's so ubiquitous through both Android and iPhones. It's the same technology. Bluetooth is interesting. Yeah. So if I'm ever going to make a shipment of illegal drugs, I'm going to wrap it all in aluminum foil and form a Faraday cage so the tracker can't get out. Absolutely. (laughs) For instance, did you see, oh, and this was one of those moments that I, I hurt myself laughing so much that I cried. Somebody had created anti 5G uh, containers that you slip over your router 
and would prevent 5G from entering your home, which was oh. a Faraday, Faraday cage, which if you've never looked up what a Faraday cage is, I beg of you, go do it now. <laughs> but if it's, it's not so much funny that somebody did it and put it online as one, why didn't I think of it? And two, go out to Amazon right now and read all the comments because they are comedy, comedy gold on the topic of, hey, it's interfering. We're done recording. <laughs> it's, it's interfering with my, my, my Wi-Fi. I don't know. It stops the 5G, but it interferes with my Wi-Fi. I just don't like this product. Uh, Which is like, and the whole point of how many hundreds of people bought, it was like, so I could make money scamming people with stupid shit on Amazon, which does precisely what it advertises. It does prevent 4G and 5G, and 3G. <laughs> and if you want something that prevents all that, I can make you something that'll do that. This reminds me of the uh, audiophile market where various people who are searching for the most ultimate, best, you know, excellent sound reproduction go out and buy amazingly absurd things like specially treated stone slabs to put their turntable on or mm -hmm. platinum bricks to put on top of your amplifier to smooth out the highs or whatever. So I thought I would write a parody of this with superconducting speaker cables that needed oxygen-free liquid nitrogen to keep them uh, Did you write it? Would you read it? Uh, no, I... I I did some research on it, and I decided I couldn't make it absurd enough to actually be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, from something they taught us, if you ever think music degrees are not useful, you get a lot of information about sound waves and about the different metals that conduct sounds differently. For instance, brass conducts a very large overtone series. Um, and the more precious the metal, as you get towards the silver and then the gold and then the platinum, actually decrease the overtone series rather than increase it, which is why you have Jean-Pierre Rampal has a golden head on his silver flute because you, in a flute, you want the exact purity of the note. You don't want the big warm sound that you get out of a brass section like Oh, let's just say a tuba or a, or, a, or a trombone, but you get something that's very, very precise, which is why they use some gold precious metals in the components for speaker sound, because there is a, well, it conducts exactly what it's supposed to and doesn't add to it. However, <laughs> and this is the big however, Putting a big lump of platinum, first of all, you couldn't lift it because that is stunningly heavy. <laughs> you know, if you think of a platform, maybe a foot square, I couldn't lift it. Right. Um, and it's astoundingly expensive, which makes it attractive to audiophiles. Yes, the, the sheer cost of it shouldn't be an indication of quality. Sometimes it's merely right. an indication of what they can get you to play for. Right. And the example I was thinking of might actually be tungsten instead of platinum, which oh, is there you go. more affordable. On the other but, hand, a slightly, you can look on the periodic chart to see, you know, and assume that as you go one direction, the signal gets more pure and it really, you know, removes the overtones. But what is sound in music 
but overtones in its own way. People love the violin because of the overtones. Right. They love. And I wanted to mention that, you know, brass versus wood, woodwinds have an entirely different overtone series. They do. They do. And, I, and you're a bass player, so you know, understand that string theory, and by this we don't mean cosmological truth, but we right. mean right. Uh, the, the vibration vibrate. of actually physical metal strings. Exactly. Or even nylon or cat gut, whatever you want. They they have the same theory and the same the-, the the reason that people can go from one stringed instrument to another is the general theory of changing notes by the overtone series is consistent across whatever material you choose. Right. I should probably mention that I'm ABD in music, all but degree. <laughs> exactly. I, I was one credit short of a uh, dual major in computer science and music. There were in my school a lot of our music majors that also were in computers and engineering. They said it was the only other major that they really respected for the sheer amount of time spent working at the individual degree in craft. Right. I may be weird, but I actually like the music theory courses. Mm-hmm. Theory is great. Yeah. Now, and it helps with the uh, bass playing. And now I was going to think about, when I was starting to think about all of these, what is obsolescence and what is not obsolescence, and part of me went to my favorite idea of caper movies, because when we watch all of the caper movies, you see what is old security tech, new security tech. Part of it is remembering how people once upon a time might listen to hear the clicks of a, of a tumblers falling, but they don't anymore. I really wanted to do a shout out for Patrick McLean's book, The Soak, which had it started with a positive idea of here's, here's a guy who's retired, living in Sonora. Okay, not living in Sonora, but now I'm thinking of you, Barry. It's, <laughs> if you had been the expert on armored car theft. People don't steal from armored cars anymore. There's no point. Why would I do all of the life and limb risking of trying to break and get shot into an armored car when I could sit at home and learn how to hack into a bank account? But what they need is a very special circumstances where they do need to steal an armored car. The kids today don't know how to do that. So we need to go bring somebody like, bring Barry up out of retirement to say, one more job, Barry, you and me. There's a car. Here's the payout. We'll take care of your mother-in-law forever. What do you think? Are you in? Yeah, perhaps the armored car has a thumb drive with the keys to enable the wire transfer of the whole bank's assets to our account in the Cayman Islands. There could be a lot of interesting pieces mm. on that. I, I am hoping that uh, I, I am dying to have, I know that the journalist working on the Panama Papers, uh, I think they were murdered recently, but it still doesn't change the, the opportunity to, man, they should have, the, the minute if I were going to crack some major international third-party island tax shelter where billionaires were keeping all of their money, the first thing I would do is hire a lot of protection and the second thing I would do was get my published book out as early as humanly possible. You want that horse out of the barn. <laughs> right. So that nobody thinks I can just go back and, you know, lock the door and, and shoot the horse keeper in here. So hear me out there. If any of you are working at cracking these others, publish quickly. Do not wait for perfection. Just publish it. 
Right. There's a point where you just shoot your manuscript in the head and send it to the agent. Yes. And, and or this might even be something I self-published to say, let's get this out on Amazon and everywhere else and pay Simon & Schuster to publish me, etc. I, I might do that just to, just to protect my own life because it's not like the, hey, here's the proof I have. And if you kill me, a, a copy of this is, it's a similar idea. Yeah. Well, we seem to have strayed from our the ostensible topic of this edition of the podcast. Outdated technical references. Do, do we have, right. give, me, give me a closer that you think is perfect for. Well, I was thinking about uh, computer storage. Oh, and, yeah. And Asimov had a thing called a book film. And Frank Herbert had one called a film book. <laughs> and in my mind, these were always some sort of microfiche, which is basically images of pages of text on uh, basically film, but very, very tiny. And you had to use a special magnifying uh, device to project it onto a screen, and then you could read it. And, you know, I don't think anyone in the last uh, 20 years has ever even heard of it. <laughs> so you you read the uh, 1965 Frank Herbert story with the film books in it, and you go, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's there is something for me that has been kind of fun that was like it was old and it was obsolete, and then it was new, and now it's it's real again. You hear me out. So once upon a time, you had like oh like. David Gerald's The Crystals from Land of the Lost that, you know, they made things and did things and you moved around in an incomprehensible way. And maybe they were information and it could have taken somewhere else, but how would you play this alien technology? And in the same way, if you look back 50 years, 70 years, if I handed a kid a great big old five and a half inch floppy disk or a bunch of cards, what would it take for them as an adventure to figure out how to play it? How oh, to... my. There you go. Because it's, right. you know, you hand somebody a punch card and you're like, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? <laughs> well, they, it would probably be fairly easy to figure out that it's storing information. But trying to actually read the information, assuming the card's, don't have the characters printed across the top like this some end card punches did. <laughs> this end up? <laughs> yeah. No, they'd, they'd actually have the, the characters of your program encoded across the top if you had the right kind of key punch. And then IBM 029 would do it, for instance. But then if you duplicate your program deck, you get basically completely blank cards and who knows what's in them. Oh, and there were two different IBM key punches, an 027 and an 029, and I discovered they were not compatible the hard way. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if, I don't remember precisely, help, help jog me. Right now, my bitch at Apple is the constant swapping of interfaces. I mean, at least it seems like they've sort of settled a little bit on USB-C for a while, but the fact that I'm sitting here staring at a dongle that has like five different interfaces all plugging into one. Oh, yeah. 
I went through a box of miscellaneous cables the other day, and I found, I think, at least four different iPhone charging cables, all with you know different interfaces. The first ones had that wide 30-pin connector, and then there was the lightning connector, and now it's uh, USB-C, and probably another one or two in there. Yeah, it's very annoying because I buy, I go and I buy little USB power bricks and really nice cables that won't fall apart in three months. So and what's then our... they come out with another phone and I have to buy all new ones. So what's our advice here for a would-be writer of sci-fi and tech? I, I want to say, don't take these as cautionary, but should they keep it on the fantasy side or should they bury themselves in the tech of the moment? Yeah, it seems to me that it would be a little safer, uh, obsolescence proof to add more hand wave in. Normally, I'm against hand wave in, but in this case, you know, if you need some sort of storage device that will hold lots of information for your story, just make it a MacGuffin and it's a thing that stores lots of information and maybe you can give it a cool name like a memory crystal or who knows and what. There are, I think, enough people that believe that crystals could be um, structured storage devices that uh, I'm going to say that's a very nice hand wavy in there, crystals. Yeah. Sure. Or, people, people, first of all, it, it has the thing, it's believable, it's obscure, and it doesn't go into details and you're not saying, well, slip it into the reader. You don't have to describe the reader in any way, too. The reader could be an old Shivas Regal bag. Sure. I like it. Any other final thoughts or advice for the uh, would-be writer? Uh, let me think about it. Yeah, I, I guess my advice for the writer would be Try to be careful about what technology you're putting in your story and don't make it too anchored to the current time. Because like William Gibson's Sky Over the Port, uh, it will probably, if you're that specific, it will probably get obsoleted sometime in the future. Yeah. Although I want to temporize that and say a little bit, <laughs> if I started it in saying, it was 1981, and the sky over that was a that would actually set it in actually re in a reinforcing kind of way. That's so if true. I wanted to do that, then I could say that ah, everyone who had a childhood of the 80s would know it, and it was it was right there, and it would make sense. And someone born in the 21st century might see that and go, "Oh, maybe televisions were different back then." Let me go to Google. Oh, the Mindstream. Didn't they have the Mindstream yet? <laughs> right. Uh, How did they dip into the great uh, neural net that we all join right now through? Right. Maybe they, did, they didn't have Bluetooth neural implants. What kind of primitive weirdos were these? Well, I don't know. I, I talked to had a very interesting drunken fireside chat once with a gal who was getting her PhD in organic chemistry because she wanted to work on quantum computing, 
but the problem was maintaining the vacuum state was nearly impossible. However, they discovered cellular structure could behave with the same linked um, linked vibration on, at the proton level without having to deal with a vacuum which was constantly breaking down. Yeah, that reminds I, me of some story I read uh, back in the before times where they stored data in a crystal and to uh, turn on a bit, they would nudge the atom. And, sure. And yeah, okay, whatever. Well, it makes Johnny Mnemonic to come around to, you know, a little bit more accurate. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we hid a whole bunch of stuff in your brain. And right. I've seen a few of those shows that actually that could make sense, except for they hand-waved their science not quite accurately, but it was close enough that I was willing to suspend my disbelief on it. Right. Cool. Thank you so much for talking with me about this today, Barry. Oh, it was a pleasure. We will put links to the various topics we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David. I'd rather go walking on the beach with my girlfriend when she asks me Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.